What is pre-hospital medicine? Well, um, I think this video sums it up in a nutshell. Have you got I feel So, why should um, you guys care at all about uh, pre-hospital medicine? Um, you know, probably fact that some of you do it if you're in the room. I think there are some similarities between people doing acute medicine and people doing pre-hospital medicine. Um, they're both kind of frontier specialties. They've not been around for that long. Um, they're both quite new. And I think they both exist as almost time-based specialties. So, I was thinking about this. So what, what defines what your specialty is? So some of them, you know, I trained as an anaesthetist. It's just, what is an anaesthetist? It's just someone who could do anaesthesia. That is the skill. It's a skill-based specialty. And there are other things which are disease-based specialties, like oncology, where you look after people with cancer. And then there are other specialties which look after people with a specific, or, well, they look after a specific organ, like the heart. Um, and then also do ICM, which is kind of a location-based specialty. It's not... The speciality is that you look after people in an area because it's got laser machines that no one else knows how to work. Um, but I think acute medicine and pre-hospital medicine are kind of time-based specialties. We look after people because of the time course of their illness. So um, acute medicine looks after people in the acute phase of their illness. Pre-hospital medicine, as opposed to all of pre-hospital care, is quite defined both by their location as in pre-hospital, but also by the time phase that we're looking after people early on in their disease. So we've got a lot of similarities. Um, and it makes life a bit difficult because it's a bit like being at school. You know, we came up with pre-hospital so new and everyone thinks, oh, this is great, you know, we've got this great idea. This is clearly good for patients. Let's go and see them um, at the acute bit of their illness. Um, but then we've taken our specialty, probably a bit like some of you, and we've had to go out into the real world, into the playground, and got a bit of a kicking um, from various other people um, who think, well, I don't know what you're doing, you're just wasting your time. Um, so I think it's quite important that you know a bit about what it's like from another new specialty. And we have to work as a team. <laughs> anyway, so that's all the videos, I'm afraid. It's early in the morning. Um, 
so this is the this is a diagram about how you access unscheduled care, and there's loads of ways that you can access care in the NHS. You can just walk into a pharmacy, you can dial nine nine nine, you can dial one one one, you can go to see your GP, you can just pitch up at a hospital in the emergency department. There are loads of ways, and we spend an awful lot of money trying to persuade people to do it in the right way, and then we change our minds a couple of years later. Um, but this is basically what pre-hospital emergency medicine is. So that's the whole of pre-hospital care. But I'm not going to talk to you about being a GP, which is pre-hospital care. I'm going to talk about emergency, um, pre-hospital emergency care. And that is basically around going to scenes in ambulances and taking ill people to hospital um, and about transferring them between hospitals. And that's something that um, is an increasing role. As we've just learned, we're centralising trauma. Um, there are pushes to centralise other diseases, um, strikes getting centralised, mm -hmm. Uh, heart disease is getting centralised, children is getting centralised. So we are moving ill people around the country. What it is not is being a helicopter hero. Um, and we'll talk a bit about that later. So why, why bother? Why should anyone do pre-hospital care? Um, well, there are a number of time-critical interventions that exist. Um, and I don't mean just going for last orders. Um, it allows you to be in the front line. So I asked my colleagues, I said, well, what, what should I tell acute physicians about um, doing pre-hospital care? They said, well, the one thing is, when you go to someone's house um, and see them ill in their house, that's a true social history. So when, you, you know, when we have people who sort of clutching their chest with chest pain, you go in and you see they're surrounded by overflowing ashtrays. I mean, it was quite a shock. I... A nice Bristol graduate went to the right sort of school and trained in Bristol, lived in nice parts of it, and then did pre-hospital care. And there's a whole sort of society out there who live in a way which you would not imagine. The number of times you go to people who've got full hospital beds inside their houses in their downstairs room, who apparently are independent of their ADLs. So well, really. Um, you can see different places, meet interesting people. Um, and because it's there, because it exists, because people get ill before they arrive in your hospital, I think it's important that um, doctors are part of their care. So um, why doctors? This is one of the few bits of actual science. So um, do physicians increase survival with pre-hospital treatment? Mm, possibly. This is great. I mean, this, you know, only in Scandinavia can you get away with a paper like this. So they basically got all the trials. They sort of claim it's a meta-analysis, but they said, well, we've written down the names of the trials which are good, the names which don't make any difference, and the names which are, show that physicians make it worse. There are more in this column, so it must be good. So, <laughs> okay, good. That's why it's in the SJ Trem and not the New England Journal, I think. Um, but it, the important thing to say is that yeah, when we look at where physicians make a difference pre-hospital care, we struggle a little bit to prove it in trauma. And in fact, in, non, in a traumatic um, disease, it's a lot easier. Um, cardiac arrest is the easiest one to study. And almost every um, study shows that you do a better job of cardiac arrest if you have a doctor um, on scene. And we can talk a bit about perhaps why that might be. Um, but it's not, just, it's not just trauma by any stretch of the imagination, um, what we deal with. Uh, why should we have a doctor and a paramedic? Well, this is one of the things that, that we can do. This is looking at um, a, uh, the West Midlands, and this is their doctor unit. Um, and this is their... Uh, so doctors are in white, um, and the paramedics are in black and grey. And so what, what do you actually do? Well, you stop people coming to hospital, so you don't transfer dead people into hospital. Um, you don't just intubate dead people, um, but in fact you do a bit more... Um, uh, a bit more sort of specific and useful interventions for them. 
So what, what do we actually go to? So this is the Great Western Air Ambulance, um, which uh, is called the Great Western Air Ambulance, but in fact, uh, over 50% of the time responds just in a car. Um, it's made up of volunteer, uh, well, about some volunteers, some paid um, doctors, usually from emergency medicine or anaesthesia. And this is what we go to. And as you see, our number one dispatch criteria is not a traumatic one. It's serious, life-threatening medical problems. Um, and that's just a catch-all for them to send you to anyone who... Um, they send you to chest pains that they think are deteriorating, difficulty in breathing. Um, fitting is a common thing that we go to. Um, drug overdose, sepsis, whatever. Um, what can we do when we get there? Um, well, po point one, is that the most useful thing that we do? Perhaps, sometimes I wonder. It certainly saves a lot of resource. Um, it's uh, d d Diagnosing death is... Um, it's tricky, and, and on IT it seems to get trickier all the time, keep changing it. Um, but we can go out to people's houses who are clearly dead and say, this person is dead, and let's not waste a lot of money taking them to hospital. Let's not bring a whole load of people down to the emergency department and jump on this poor person's chest for a bit longer. Um, so that's one thing we can do. Second thing we can do, we can take people to the right place at the right time. I think that's another thing that's very useful. So if we see somebody who's having a heart attack, um, we can say, Right, they're having a heart attack. I don't care that the ECU doesn't quite make, meet their criteria. Let's take them to a place that deals with heart attacks all the time. Or this person's having a stroke. Let's go past this sort of somewhere that can't thrombolize them. Let's take them straight to the stroke hospital. Um, we can anesthetize people, which is um, increasingly useful. We can drain um, their uh, drain their chests. Um, we've got some extra drugs. We can pace people. But possibly one of the most important things is we, we put an experienced decision maker in the very front line of um, medicine. We can do uh, access, IO access. We've got an ultrasound machine to look for stuff. Um, no difficult access to, uh, I mean, IO needles are beloved of um, paramedics at the moment. They all seem to have them. It's because it's like this little gun thing that you drill into people's bones. It's very exciting. Um, I've never used it because most people have got veins. Uh, um, uh, hemostatics and tourniquets, um, which uh, I was going to say, I was thinking about this, I think, have we only used it in trauma? Well, actually, no. We had somebody with uh, um, an uh, AV fistula for renal dialysis that suddenly just went and it was just hosing blood out and they went and put a tourniquet on it and said, well, why don't we take them to the hospital that deals with renal um, fistula, um, which probably saved quite a lot of time and angst for the patient and for everyone involved. We carry some extra drugs, so um, obviously being an anaesthetist, I put the anaesthetic drugs in really big. Um, <laughs> it's not really good at reading. Um, they, and they, but we also carry lots of other drugs, and lots of them are medical type things, um, adenosine, Tenlo, which we've never used. We have used adenosine because you can just, if you get someone with a primary uh, SVT, um, you can cardiovert them with adenosine if you need it. Uh, we've got local anaesthetic for pain relief, calcium. Um, and again, we have used calcium for somebody, you get renal patients who've arrested, it clearly looks like they're having a hyperclinic arrest. It's worked quite well. Um, it stops you having, so we can give IV keftriaxone at scene for people with meningococcal disease rather than waiting, giving them a dose of IV, of IM Benpen. Um, we've got blood uh, culture bottles, so we can take the culture. Um, flumazenil, hypertonic saline for raised intracranial pressure. Uh, magnesium we give to uh, asthma. Oxy, uh, is um, an anaesthetic eye drop. 
and that's amazing. I mean, you sometimes get people who've just, we've used this twice, someone with a flash burn to the eye, and people with eye burns are in excruciating agony, someone else with a glass injury to the eye. You can't control them because they're just running around um, in pain, and you put this stuff in and it works straight away. Ivy paracetamol is a very good painkiller. Ivy salbutamol, I'm not sure we've ever used that, I'm not sure we should have it necessarily. Um, Tenecteplase, uh, we now don't do much pre-hospital thrombolysis uh, except for in the case of PE. So we carry all these drugs which gives us an extra bit of um, armoury. Uh, what else do we do? Well, we can just help out. This is our lead, just sort of cleaning up some manure. Um, so who are you? Who are, who are the people who get involved in this? Um, well, I said the specialty um, at the moment, it's, a, it's not a full specialty, it's a subspecialty. It's a subspecialty currently of um, emergency medicine and anaesthesia only. Um, the problem with pre-hospital care is because it involves helicopters and trauma, um, both of which are words which are quite exciting, um, you tend to um, sometimes attract uh, people who are going into it for perhaps the wrong reasons. Um, and, you know, it's very important that not everyone is a helicopter hero. Um, if you want to wear an orange suit, become a binman. Um, uh, because it doesn't look that cool. And um, it's a lot of the time it's spent sitting around in an office drinking tea and reading um, two-day-old copies of The Sun. Um, and a lot of it is about talking to people, um, about declaring death, about discharging minor illness, about reassuring people. Um, the running around to big car accidents is a very minor part of what you do. Um, you do need the skills to deal with that, but I think it's more important, the communication skills um, and a lot of the... I think you've got a lecture today on CRM, the, the crisis resource and human resources management, the sort of ability to communicate with both the public and other members of the emergency service is probably the most important thing we do. Um, the other thing which I talked about before, um, and I think I'm trying to kind of come up with things that cross the, um, the two specialties. It's this idea of um, sort of rapid decision-making uh, and experienced early decision-making, um, which is something which we think is very important in pre-hospital care. Um, it's the end of the bedogram. You guys must do it all the time. I mean, how do you know? You, I mean, when you do your acute medicine, say, or pay-state ward round, how many patients do you see? What, 50, 60, something like that? And how many of them... Um, how do you spot the one that's really ill? I mean, how, I don't know how long you get to spend with them nowadays. It seems about five minutes when I did medicine. And you've got to go around all these people. And what is it that makes you pick that one out? Um, there's something, uh, you know, a leap in consciousness, intuition, um, gut instinct. But it's not just gut instinct. It's, this is based on your experience. So what you've done is you've seen lots and lots and lots and lots of people over time. And you have built up in your banks an idea of what an ill person looks like. Um, and it's a theory called thin slicing. And so, a little quiz for you. Okay, which of those is uh, true art? Who wants to say that one? Who wants to say that one? Go on, make a decision. <laughs> that one? Yeah, you're all right. Okay, which of those is true art? Is it the blue squiggle or the black circle? Black circle. Okay, how do you know? What, what gives it away? You've just seen lots of pictures, you know, it's just a black circle, you could, anyone could make that, but there's something about it that is aesthetically pleasing, that one is aesthetically unpleasing. Um, and there's a guy called Malcolm Gladwell who writes a lot of books, and he's written one called Blink, which is the power of thinking without thinking. He talks about this concept of thin slicing. It's something we definitely, definitely do in pre-hospital care, and I think probably happens 
um, in most of the acute specialties in hospital. It's what you're doing. It's the end of the bedogram. As you're walking up, you're not making a random decision. You're relying on all your years of experience um, to allow you to come to the decision very rapidly that what is it as you do your wardrobe that picks out the ill person. And we talk about it in pre-hospital care. When you walk up to the job, even from the phone call that you get, can you tell, is this an ill patient or not an ill patient? Um, and it's, I think the, the thing that having a doctor in pre-hospital care does is put somebody with a vast amount of experience of seeing ill patients into a pre-hospital environment. Unfortunately, paramedics, um, because of the nature of their work, um, will see uh, probably five patients a day um, and will only see every month, every year, one major trauma and between one and two cardiac arrests. So their ability to see the numbers of ill patients that any of us see is very limited. So what we're doing is bringing that experience to the pre-hospital environment and very rapidly saying, look, this person's ill. We're going to need to do stuff here. This is an ill one where I'm going to be very busy working. This is a less ill patient where I'm going to be using some of my other human resources skills to um, talk to them, uh, manage the scene, keep everyone happy, win the hearts and minds of the public. Um, so here are a few real cases I thought I'd go through um, that are some medical stuff that we deal with. Anyone know where that is? Stonehenge, yeah. So we covered the summer solstice, uh, where all these people go, and this was our case. Um, someone had taken an uncertain amount of uh, substance from a friend, and now had abdominal pain and appeared to have a high fever, was screening and running around, um, had tried to self-medicate um, <laughs> his pain. Um, and, um, you know, what do you do in this? The, the ambulance service was slightly overwhelmed. It was taking three or four people. Um, now, in this case, actually, we managed to talk this person down. Um, his fever wasn't as high as we first thought. When we first heard this, we were very concerned that he'd taken anyone. Yeah, methadrone, or one of these things that gives you, or so, something that he thought was an ecstasy that's given him some sort of neuroleptic malignant, uh, malignant hyperpyrexia syndrome. Um, the abdopain, I don't know. In fact, I don't think he had probably taken some, taken some paracetamol or something, hadn't he? That had been sold for a tenner. Um, and uh, we managed to talk him down, but we had got the ability in this case to administer, um, you know, we could give him some adazolam to get him calm, to get him into an ambulance, to get him to hospital. And in this case, we didn't need to, but that option was available to us. Because the problem being that that is where Stonehenge is, and it's just nowhere near. Bath is probably your, oh, Salisbury, Bath, your nearest hospitals. Okay, does anyone know where this is? It's in Chepstow, and it's going to come relevant to why we're talking about Chepstow in Plymouth. This is the National Diving Centre. Okay, it's located here. Um, and this is somewhere that we get called to on a fairly regular basis. Um, so we got called one day to a diver in cardiac arrest. Um, they bring, pull them out of the water here, uh, chuck them into the back of a truck here, which they've driven down, which they've got an AED in. Um, so he was found not responding at 30 metres. So this was basically a massive quarry and they've chucked some planes and a bus in it and these people come and dive in this icy cold water and look at a plane which has been put there deliberately. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, I personally went diving in the Great Barrier Reef, it was much better. Um, uh, they had had an emergency, so he'd had a, stand, a standard dive, he was just looking at the plane, but he'd had an emergency ascent, but when he'd come up, he was found to be in VF. He'd been shocked by um, an AED. Um, so, you know, to help me out, what problems? He's got two problems, this guy. 
Sorry? He's got, so he's got decompression illness because he's had an emergency ascent mm. from 30 metres. But does, um, does the bends give you VF? Mm-hmm. No. So most divers seem to be sort of slightly overweight middle-aged men. Um, and he was one of them. And they, he just had heart disease, I think, and had had an MI. He was very lucky in some ways. Well, lucky, really, to come up from 30 metres to get shocked by an AED. And in fact, by the time we got there, he was, um, he was not not comatose. He was starting to have a GCS of between 10 and 11, but complaining of pain and very agitated. So do you know where the nearest... Um, what do you have to do with people with um, decompression illness? Where do you have to take them? Hmm? Here. Here is the nearest decompression chamber to the National Diving Centre. There is one at Pool. That's further away. That's further away. Isn't it? Yeah. So it's in Chepstow, so it's down. It's like a straight line. It can't be much. It's got a motor <laughs> to come here. Uh, so there is one at Port, but our tendency is to ring um, here for advice. Yeah. So that's kind of what we do. And so it's just say we do bring people all the way from as far up as Chepstow down to here because we don't want them in Bristol. And. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So what are the time critical things that we can deal with that are relevant to you? So trauma, I mean, let's say it's not all about trauma. Cardiac arrest is time critical. MI is a time critical illness. I think we'd all agree. Um, in London, they're using helicopters to transfer patients with MIs into their PCI centres. Uh, status epilepticus, something we go to really often. Um, again, something that you can often solve very early on. Um, and it saves people 20, 25 minutes of fitting. It's very quick. Uh, the um, paramedics will rapidly run out of their, um, their drugs. Stroke, we go to. Um, stroke, paramedics seem reasonably good at, but it's... Uh, w- so what you do if you ever get sent to a stroke is basically just say, right, let's get to the hospital really, really quickly. So there's a lot of things we can do on scene, but sometimes the best thing you do is say, let's get to the hospital really quickly and get in the ambulance, drive like you stole it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Antibiotic therapy, early antibiotic therapy. I'm sure that uh, we're going to hear about this more later. You're talking about uh, an chemo. No, nobody asks what happens to the people who are already on antibiotics. Um, every hour in delay in giving antibiotics results in an increased mortality of 8%. Time is cytokine. Um, how long does it take to go places? So from a 999 call on average, this is for stroke now. So this is where... The tendency is for the paramedic to make a rapid assessment and a rapid transfer to hospital. Okay, so there's an ambulance target of eight minutes, so a bit like four-hour waits. The average time that ambulances take to get somewhere is eight minutes. Um, on-scene time, um, the average on-scene time at attending a stroke is 35 minutes. Now that might seem like a long, long time to you, but I promise you, these people are invariably in um, you know, they all live in sort of big high tall, high rise buildings they always are upstairs so what people do is call an ambulance from their hall and they go upstairs um, pack their bag and feel ill in their bedroom so you then have to work out a way to get them out of their bedroom um, the relatives they often want to wait for a relative to come before they come to them and so even trying your hardest 35 minutes is actually it's it's not terrible you know, go out there and see it for yourselves if you ever want to it's hard to get people out of their houses through and average transfer time is 20 minutes so, so we talk about the golden hour in trauma and, they, and here they talk about the golden hour in other types of medicine the golden hour exists before you get into hospital uh, what else can we do overdoses we go to quite often um, you know, I always think I sort of come down here I thought oh, I wonder if we should try and 
you know, if you get pre-hospital doctors down here, you should send them onto your sort of plague ships to uh, get get them quarantined. Um, GI bleeding, perhaps we could go to. No, we can all learn from the army. London Hems um, now carry blood with them, and as we know from when I don't know if you've most hospitals, we, we audited our massive uh, transfusion protocol, thinking that massive transfusion was all about trauma. It's not at all. We found out the vast majority of them are GI bleeding. The second commonest being um, obstetric bleeding with trauma being quite a low cause of major hemorrhage in our hospital. We aren't a trauma centre, so it might explain it. But um, you know, what we can learn from the army, and then down here, you know, what the army can learn from us. It's not all military. Unfortunately, in, um, in real life, people are old. Um, they are not young and fit, so there's a lot of differences. You can't take the military skills straight into doing civilian pre-hospital care. So does it affect you guys? Well, mm, this is the region, and most people from this region, there's very limited pre-hospital care at the moment. You're actually um, almost an outlier. Most of the rest of the country has got some degree of physician pre-hospital cover, um, apart from uh, sort of Wales and the um, <coughs> southwest peninsula. Uh, how do you train in FAM? I'll just go through this quickly. Basically, at the moment, you've got me in... Um, so I'm the pre- pre-hospital programme director. I've got no um, trainees and no programme. Yeah, so... <laughs> But it could be the worst job in the world. Um, this is how you do it from emergency medicine. So what, what's in, interesting for people who are um, true acute medicine, ACCS acute medicine trainees, is in fact um, your training is virtually the same up to the point you do FEM. So if people are really keen, I wouldn't surprise me at all if you could manipulate it and ask for it to be a specialty of acute medicine as well, subspecialty. Uh, this is what they have to do when they train. Um, this makes me laugh. They're supposed to do 120 workplace-based assessments in a year of training. Yeah, right. Um, so what can I do? So what can you guys do as acute physicians? Um, there are a few things. One is a bit of solidarity. You know, there are these small new specialties that exist. Um, the one thing we could all do as small new specialties is please not fight against each other. Let's all be on the same team. Um, you can help find new horizons. So I don't do that much medicine anymore. So I think about, when I think about it, I'm thinking from a pre-hospital point of view, when you go around, next time you see all of your patients, um, think about what could have been done sooner for them. Is there anything we could have done? And I've got one final challenge to you. I'd like you, next time you go on a post-take order and I see a take patient, I'd like you to take the ambulance patient record form and read it and don't read, first of all, have a look at the times Look at the time the call was made and the time the patient came to hospital and the time you saw them. And I promise you, you'll find that pre-hospital times are long. Um, and have a look at what's been done um, and what the paramedics say, because there's often a wealth of really useful information in these forms. And it's dicey. But the, my main challenge is please have a look at the times and just have a feel for what your own pre-hospital times are. So that's it. Thanks very much.